But I don't want to talk about baseball. I want to talk about hockey because in the 70s and the 80s, the best men's hockey team in the entire world came from the country formerly known as the USSR. They won four straight Olympic gold medals. The team was made up of entire, or the entire team was made up of professional athletes who had huge experience on the national stage. So when they came to the Olympics in 1980, Lake Placid, New York, nobody, and I mean nobody, that the, the team from the United States made up primarily of amateur athletes who didn't even really have a chance to make the Olympics in the first place. Nobody thought they could beat the team from the USSR, yet with 30 seconds left, they found themselves up four to three. I want to show you the last 30 seconds of the game. Let's watch that right now. said yes I love that clip I love that game it's one of the greatest games played in the history of sports let alone hockey and I think I speak for everybody in the room today not just myself that the reason we love these underdog stories the reason we love to see our team win is because we ourselves love winning we love it at the same time we also hate it and I think this is true for everybody here on some degree we hate losing we hate being the loser. Now, let's take it out of the sports world. I know not everybody is sports-minded like I am. I love all sports. I love playing them. I love watching them. Let me ask you this. Have you ever been passed over for a promotion? You worked really hard. You thought that you deserved the raise, and you didn't get it. Maybe you applied for a job you didn't get. Students in the room here today, have you ever studied really hard for a test, and you didn't get the grade that you thought you deserved? Maybe you didn't make a sports team yourself. Maybe you got passed over by a boy or a girl for a date or the prom or the homecoming. Whether you play checkers and play board games or you like watching sports on TV, I think it's true that we all hate losing and that we all love winning. Well, as I mentioned at the beginning of the, sermon, or the service, we are starting today a four-part sermon series called Jesus Wins. Jesus Wins. Now, what does that mean for us? What does it mean that Jesus has won the victory for us over sin and death? What difference does it make in our life? And to do that, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 5. And in the sermon today, I want to do two things, or three things. First of all, let's unpack some of this symbolic language that we see here in Revelation chapter 5. A lot of people, when they read Revelation, uh, they read chapters 1 two and three, the letters to the churches. Then they get to chapter four through 22 and they kind of tap out of Revelation because you're like, what is this seven eyes and seven horns? And what in the world is this about? Let's let the pastors deal with Revelation four through 22. We're not gonna do that. We're gonna unpack what that means for us today, first of all. And then I'm gonna look at two things that we see in the text. First of all, there's great spiritual loss. We risk losing spiritually if we don't recognize the rule and reign of Jesus that we see in this text. 
but then counter that with great spiritual victory. There is a promise of victory for us that applies to our very lives now and into the future. We'll look at those two things, but let's first start with this, unpacking some of this symbolic language that we see. To do that, I want to invite you to open up a Bible in your pew. Right in the front of you, you'll see a Bible. You can use an app on your phone as well. We do this a lot here to kind of get familiar with the text. Uh, Revelation is the very last book of the Bible, if you're here for the first time today. But we're going to start first in chapter 4, to kind of set the tone, set the scene of where John finds himself. This is the Apostle John. He's on an island in Patmos. He'd been put there in prison. And right after Jesus writes the very last letter to the church that we looked at last week, John experiences this. Chapter 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet. This is Jesus. We, looked about this, we learned about this in the first chapter of Revelation. Jesus said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne. This is God the Father. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And on the throne were 24, around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now, we'll stop right there. First of all, we don't actually know, scholars don't know what these two stones are, Jasper and Carnelian, the way that they are describing God here, God the Father. The point that John's trying to make is he's trying to unpack for us a heavenly image that is like nothing he's ever seen before. There's no real words to help us describe fully what it's going to be like when we see God, except it's going to be bright and beautiful and something that we are just going to be amazed by. Because, of course, this is God's heavenly throne. And surrounding God's throne, there's 24 elders sitting on thrones of their own. But then look down with me in chapter 4, verse 8. And the four living creatures, these are on all four sides of the throne of God, each of them with six wings, full of eyes all around them and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And these four beings, they have four different faces or appearances, wings all over, eyes all over, very strange creatures. It's like a fantasy movie, really. But the purpose or the function of these creatures, one, they're the personal bodyguard of God. Nobody can get in or out of the inner throne room because they see everything. And then second of all, they attend to God's every need. They praise him, they worship him, they attend to him. We see the same thing in Ezekiel the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Daniel, very consistent with the image of God the Father, very strange to us and yet very familiar in the heavenly realm. That's, that's the setting in which John finds himself. In the rest of chapter 4, the creatures and the elders and the angels are worshiping God the Father at his throne. Now turn with me to chapter 5, verse 1, what we read earlier. Then, John says, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written and on the back sealed, or uh, I'm sorry, the scroll written within, and on the back sealed with seven seals. And we'll stop again right there to understand what's going on. First of all, we know from the Old Testament that the right hand of God was the judgment hand of God. In Exodus 15, 6, it says this, that your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy, the righteous 
judgment of God who's within his right hand. That's why Jesus, we say in the Apostles' Creed, sits on the right hand of God. That's Jesus' role in heaven is judgment. But in the scroll, there's also some symbol, symbolism in the scroll itself. There's writing on the inside, but there's also writing on the outside. That's a word to denote that this is something comprehensive, something complete, and we know that even more so when you look at the seven seals. Remember, if you've been here before, anytime you see seven in the book of Revelation, it's a number of completeness. It's a number of perfection. And so what John is seeing here is Jesus taking in his right hand the complete and eternal and perfect judgment of mankind. This is our destiny. This is what's going to happen to the human race. This is what we have coming for us, and it's so important for John to know that so he can share it with the Christian church, not only in the first century AD, but also with us today and every generation until Christ returns. It is infinitely important that we know what's inside this scroll so that we can know our destiny, so we can be prepared. Which is why John, later on, finds himself distraught when the angel shows up and says, who is worthy? And no one comes forward. No one is worthy under the earth, above the earth, in the earth, to open up those seven seals and see the contents. If you look with me at verse 5, or in verse 4, it says that I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy. And one of the elders looks at him, not very compassionate elder. The elder looks at him and says, stop your crying. Quit weeping. You don't get this. This is not a time to mourn. This is actually a time to celebrate because there is one who is worthy to open up the scroll. Now, this reminds me a lot, believe it or not, of my wedding day. In fact, I got married right here. I was standing on the altar, and my lovely wife, Amanda, she came through those windows there, walking down the aisle. I see her for the first time in her beautiful dress. I'm kind of an emotional guy. I was weeping. I was crying. And my lovely bride, she walked right up to me, looked me in the eyes, and she said, suck it up, Sally. <laughs> Which was a bold move, because at this point I could have said no still, right? I mean, I didn't have to. <laughs> Somehow we make this work, I don't know. The point being, it wasn't a time to cry, it wasn't a time to weep, it was a time to celebrate what a joyous occasion a wedding is, what a joyous celebration John was about to behold here and in verse 5, he explains, you don't understand, John, because behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered so that he can open up the scroll with the seven seals. Again, more things to describe here or explain. The tribe or the lion of Judah. This is Old Testament language referring to the Messiah. They called him the lion of Judah, the lion being the most powerful animal in nature. It said that the Messiah would come from the line of David, of the offshoot of the line of David. Again, everything pointing to Jesus here. It says that he has conquered. Now at this point, as you're reading this, you might think that when Jesus does show up on the scene, he's going to show up as a mighty, powerful lion. Or he's going to show up as the conquering hero with his armor on and his sword in his hand. But instead, he shows up in a very unusual way. Verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures, now remember, the four living creatures, the bodyguard of the Father, now all of a sudden he appears within the inner sanctum. And the elders, and I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And again, we'll stop and explain that just a little bit. First of all, the eyes. This is going back again to the Old Testament. The prophet Zechariah prophesied this. 
These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which rage, range through the whole earth. It's another way of saying that God sees everything. Remember, seven is completeness, it's perfection. Nothing is outside the realm of God, of his viewpoint, he's omniscient. And then those seven horns, again, this goes back to the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, for example. It was said of Joseph, one of the 12 sons of, of Israel, that he's a firstborn bull. He has majesty, and his horns are the horns of a wild ox. With them he shall gore the peoples, all of them, to the ends of the earth. And I know this is very violent language. We don't like to talk about this kind of violence in our culture, but this was a culture and a time when this was seen, the horn, as a symbol of majesty, a symbol of power, like a conquer an enemy. And what Jesus is doing here, showing up with these seven strange horns, seven strange eyes, and the seven uh, representing the Holy Spirit, is he's showing his omniscience, He's showing how he is all-knowing throughout all time and how he is all-powerful over every enemy. This is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit being witnessed by a human being for the very first time in history in all its glory, which is why, if you go with me to verse 8, there's such an incredible act of worship that overcomes the people and the creatures who are there. It says that when he had taken the scroll, when Jesus had the scroll in his hand, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the Lamb. They had harps and golden bowls full of incense, the prayers of the saints, and they sing a new song, not the old song that was sung in chapter 4. Now there's a new song in chapter 5. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and people and nation. This describes the diversity that's going to be in heaven when we get there. All tribes, all nations, one together, no more racism. Imagine that. United under the banner, under the throne of Jesus Christ. And go down to verse 11. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands. These are millions and millions and hundreds and thousands of angels singing. Can you imagine what that even sounds like? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And if that wasn't enough, one more. Verse 13, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. This is an amazing, majestic, incredible form of worship with singing and dancing and cheering and praising all at the throne of the Lamb who was slain. Can you even imagine it? what that day would be like, all the saints, those who have gone before you, those that you miss and those that you love in front of Jesus right now, praising him, us together someday. Oh, I just, I can't even imagine. Which is why I get so frustrated with myself when I sometimes live my life as if this is not reality. Why is it so easy to forget that this is going on in heaven, that God is being praised and that Jesus is victorious? Why is it so easy to forget that? And I go about my day and I worry and I'm filled with anxiety and I sin. Well, I think it's because, I'm going to show you this illustration. This uh, is a really good illustration. Remember Build-A-Bear? Anybody doing a Build-A-Bear before? Yeah, my kids, when they were little, we used to go to Build-A-Bear. And if you're not familiar, real quick, I'll explain it. 
You walk inside the store, you pick out the, the shell of an animal or a creature or some sort of mascot, you fill it up with stuff, with, with stuffing. Then you can add your own kind of decor to it. You can put a, a Husker hat on. Uh, you can put a cheating Houston Astros jersey on it if you want to. You can uh, take a little uh, megaphone or microphone. You can record your voice in it, like suck it up Sally, something really romantic you might want to give to your, your spouse. Put it in the paw of the creature, and when the person that you give it to squeezes it, that message comes back out to them. A really cool Build-A-Bear. Well, this is the same thing that happens to us when in our own hearts, in our own life, we forget that Jesus is ruling and reigning on the throne, and we craft in our own image, with our own hands, what the Bible calls a false idol. An idol is anything in which it replaces the love and the respect and the, the praise and the adoration that is due our God in our hearts with something else. And I want to show you another image to make this a little bit more practical for us today. This is what modern idolatry might look like for us today. We worship things like career, family, money, pleasure, fame, success. And I just want you to look at this for a second. Is any of your idol temptations on that screen right now? And I'll be vulnerable with you today because I think it's important that you know this about pastors. One of my idols, one of the things I struggle with is not on here necessarily, but it's, it's performance. See, I want so badly for you to think that I'm wise and smart and a good communicator. I want you to think so badly that I'm a good pastor, that I'm going to do good in this role. It's a performance issue, and those things aren't bad in itself. You know, we, we should want to do our best, right, in our jobs, in our career. But the idol starts to be built, and the, the new throne, our own throne, starts to be built. We put ourselves in the middle of the throne instead of Jesus Christ, and we start to worry more and care more about how we look like to other people than if God gets the glory, than if lives are being changed. And so if your idol, for example, is your family, is your kids, you're going to look at your kids, and you may not say this out loud, but your actions and in your heart, you're going to ask your kids, is this the best you can do? Or can't you do better than that? Because what you're doing, you're, you're building and you're crafting, you're creating your own little throne, and you're putting yourself in the center, your kids in the center, and you're expecting your kids to deliver something that they were never intended to deliver. Because listen to this about idols. Idols promise everything, but they deliver nothing. Idols promise everything, but they deliver nothing, which is why we always feel empty after we chase after that idol. Let's talk about money. Let's talk about our career. We'll talk about our retirement. You know, one of the things you can ask yourself, if, if idol is one of your, or if money is one of your idols, if your retirement is something that has an uh, unhealthy place in your heart, you might say things like, you know, as soon as I make this much money, as soon as I get this much wealth and comfort, then I'll start giving money to church. I'll start tithing or helping the poor. Or once I make to this part of my career, I just have to work hard enough, and once I get there, then I'm going to spend that time with my kids or my grandkids that, that I've been promising them I'm going to spend with them. See, that's a way to measure whether or not money or retirement has an undue place in your heart. And we craft these idols. We make our own gods. We make our own throne room, and we put ourselves and our own wants in the middle of it, and we forget how easy it is to forget that that's an improper throne. It's a weak, it's a pathetic throne because it's never going to fill the place in our heart that we need it to fill because this is the worst thing about false idols. They are gods without grace. Idols are gods without grace. So what do we do? 
That's the risk of spiritual loss. But we see here in our text here today, there is great promise of spiritual victory for those who believe. Turn with me to verse, or chapter 5, verse 6. This is really the key. Again, John is standing in the throne room of heaven. He sees the Lamb, and it says, Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a Lamb standing as though it had been slain. A Lamb standing slain. Now, in the Greek, this is actually a combination of two words, present participles, which implies that this is an ongoing process of victory. It's an ongoing process of Jesus being the slain one. And what it's doing is putting emphasis on this is not just one point in time when Jesus was slain for a particular group of people. He was slain. He gave up his life for not just them, but for every Christian who would call upon the name of Jesus from the beginning of time until the end of time when he returns, which means if you're convicted of sin this morning and you know there's an idol in your heart that you need to confess, when you do turn and repent and turn away from that idol and turn towards Jesus. You are not just turning to a fierce lion who's going to tear you apart. You're turning to an innocent lamb whose blood was shed so you could experience the forgiveness that you need, the grace that you need, the comfort that you need when you're burdened and racked with guilt of sin in this world. That's the first thing. But it also helps us to imagine, or in real time, practically speaking, how we deal with our temptations. I'll pick on another one that was up there before. Lust or sex, sexuality. This is a very common temptation in our culture, and I think it's probably even more tempting for men than women, but I think this applies to any sin that we might be struggling with, any temptation. See, when we look on our phones and we get that temptation to look at a certain image or go to a certain website or on our computer at the house, what we're really doing in that moment is we're creating for ourselves a false idol. An idol that might very temporarily fix a need that we have or that we think we have. It might bring us a little bit, a, a small point of pleasure. But then we find ourselves that that idol is empty because we built a small pathetic throne, a pathetic idol. And then we have to do it again and we have to do more things to continually fill this space in our heart that's empty. Instead, here's something that I think is very practical, something that can help us for a myriad of sins. Is when we first get that temptation, instead of picking up the tools to build ourselves, the false idol, the false throne. Let's look to the throne that's in heaven. Let's look to the one, Jesus, who reigns victorious, who is in his state of being slain for us and created the victory that we need to conquer temptation, to, to conquer the things that compete for our heart. Look to that throne. That's the living throne. And it's happening this very second. As we speak, people are standing at the throne, worshiping Jesus with angels and all the saints that have gone before us. Imagine that. That's where you look to find strength in fighting temptation. And one last thing, one last point of application. You know, when this book was written, it's 95 AD, there was a ton of suffering going on in the world for Christians. They were persecuted. They had loved ones who had died because of their faith, they themselves were being pressured to conform to society, and we ourselves we live in a similar culture. We're constantly being challenged and being tempted to conform to the culture. This has been a horrible last couple, year and a half, loss of life, not just the pandemic. If you look through our, our prayer list these last year and a half, in a couple weeks, it's going to be all saints day. There's going to be names on the board of people that we love, that we've lost, that we no longer get to see in this world. 
as you face those tempt or I'm sorry, as you face those pressures, as you face those sorrows in your heart, I want to invite you to look past your pain, look past your hurt, and look to the throne. To look to the risen one, the slain one, the one who it's been said had to lose so that we could win. Jesus had to lose. He gave up his life so that we could stand victoriously and so that we would have the promise that the loved ones who have died in the Lord are right this very moment in the face, in the presence of this glorious, risen Jesus Christ, praising him, hearing the praises, singing, dancing, clapping, joyous. Oh, that's the image that we look to. We miss our loved ones and we're worried about the future. Let's look to the one who gave up his life, who lost, who is a loser, so that we could have all things, especially eternal life with him. Amen? Amen.